0: Welcome to the Disaster Tough podcast, where we talk about emergency management by emergency managers. We share stories, lessons, and tips to help keep you moving forward. I am John Scardina, the host. I share my experience as a former federal emergency response official who's responded to some of the most extreme disasters over the past decade. I now lead a private emergency management firm called Doberman Emergency Management, That focuses on emergency planning, mitigation, and response. This podcast is brought to you by L3Harris. L3Harris is an amazing company. They provide communications for first responders all over the world. They created the Beyond push-to-talk app that allows your team to communicate between mobile devices and radios through encrypted lines, which makes it so much easier for the team. Even better, they are offering the Beyond app at no cost to agencies for a limited time you have to check it out. L3harris.com slash responder support or click on the show notes for details. This is part two of Patrick McGinn's episode. He is the Regional Disaster Services Director at the Salvation Army for Northern California and Northern Nevada. He's done really great things there. I was with him on the national team, as you heard in part one. So if you missed part one, go back and hear that experience. He talks all about different disasters he's responded to from earthquakes to tornadoes, hurricanes, even wildfires. He's had tons of experience. So make sure you check out part one of Patrick McGinn's interview. This is part two. It starts now.
1: One thing that happens in emergency management is you have to make decisions. You have to make informed decisions. We always talk about informed decision-making in this field. You have to make informed decisions. Well, how do you do that? when you don't have all the information? Well, you're never gonna have all the information. You need to make informed decisions off of a 40, maybe a 60, 60% solution. And by that, I mean you have only 40% or 60% of the information. But
0: you have to do something. If you don't do something, it's way worse.
1: Yeah, the key is, yeah. is you have to make a decision. So if you wait till 100% of the information is in, it's already too late. Yeah. Um, no, you know, inaction is the worst action. I talked
0: about that in episode two of this podcast, everybody should listen to it. And I was comparing that to the pandemic, right? People don't, people are, because we're in such a a highly situational awareness state right now in terms of the public, they're seeing decisions being made in real time. And people are like, whoa, like, how dare you make a decision? Well, surprise, they're humans. They don't have all the information, but they have to do something because people are dying. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that's like, one thing about Kevin Hannis, our old team lead, one thing about Kevin Hannis is that he would say we have a high tolerance for failure. And honestly, emergency managers really do need to adopt that. You have a high tolerance for failure, if you're, you're acting on the most information that you can possibly have for that moment, and you're doing something. If you're not doing anything, then that level of failure is unacceptable. You have to absolutely act. And so that's a great call out there.
1: Yeah. So for the fires, you know, you have more power than you think you can go ahead and do your own analysis, go find where the fire is going, how big that city is, look at the jurisdictional profile, look at whatever you have to look at to see who's going to be impacted, who lives in, uh, you know, where the where the town starts, where the, uh, where the homes are, how many people are going to be impacted. You can kind of do that on your own pretty easily. Uh, just by looking at a couple different maps and a couple different websites, so for wildfires, we always think you know it's a no notice event it's just going to happen that's true it is a no notice event it is just going to happen the great thing well the great thing in planning for wildfires is that you can analyze the event and you can look at which direction is it going who's going to be impacted and how quickly is it going to get there and that's kind of um, kind of maybe for for uh, all of these readiness and preparedness is obviously a big topic but uh, maybe I'll get into that in just a minute. Um, I think that's it for wildfires. I think from a planning perspective, that just those two things. One, um, 40 to 60% solution. You have to make decisions. Make sure you have the most information you can. It may only be a little bit, but you have to act. Um, and two, analyze the situation. Pull from different sources. See what you can put together. And three, uh, contingency planning. You put that together, And you're ready to go out the door as soon as one of those contingencies happen.
0: That's a really good call out. And it's a really good call out for GIS. You can have an event that might take several days to actually get to the city. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's why firefighters uh, are phenomenal what they do, because they say, hey, it's coming in this direction. We're going to try to cut it off and try to, like, you know, guide it as much as we can. And so uh, that's, a, that's a really good call you out. You know, that we, now, that
1: I, now that I think about it, and I don't mean to cut you off, but it's not yep. that no notice. It's just we have what are called red flag warnings, where all the, all the elements are there for a fire. So anytime there's red flag warnings, I email everybody in my divisions. And I oversee two different divisions for Northern California, Central California, Northern Nevada, and let them all know. Here are red flag warnings. Even if I even tell people in Nevada, because I may have to deploy people in Nevada to California for those fires, if there is a fire, so let everyone know. Hey, the vegetation is dry. High winds are on the way. Uh, there's a red flag warning in the area, and there's a PG&E power shut off, so they're not going to have power in that area. I need you guys to be ready. Um, so, from a yeah. wildfire perspective, that's that's the answer right there.
0: That's the most information you're going to get too, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're not talking about black swan. We're just talking about you know immediate onset another immediate onset disaster would be an earthquake in Alaska right what are maybe one or two things that are specific to to that type
1: of event? so i i know that we did an exercise you know it was like a, maybe it was a national level exercise where we we simulated uh an alaskan earthquake um, but i can really tell you about an earthquake that actually happened in ridgecrest california last year there was a 6.9. Oh, that's
0: right. Yeah, you responded. To
1: that. Yeah, there was a 6.9 earthquake. It was actually a wedding at the time at a, you know, Andy John, one of our, our friends, old situation unit leader. Oh, yeah. Um, Rodney wants him on this show. I should probably reach <laughs> I'm, out sure, to him. I'm sure he does. Uh, sure. We we're at his wedding, and uh, a 6.9 earthquake happened in Ridgecrest, which is uh, west, uh, east, sorry, east of Baker, northeast of Bakersfield, uh, just on the cusp of kind of central uh, Southern California. And two days later, there was a 7.1 earthquake. These are massive earthquakes. You hear it. It's terrifying. The ground is shaking. Um, lesson learned from that or best practice. And just another thing that I took from, from FEMA, from, from planning, is you have to have demobilization criteria. So something that a lot of you hear a lot from, from many operators is as soon as they get in the door, they want to know how they're going to get out. Um, the key is to not to try to get out as soon as you get in. The key is to what you put in the field, use what you have in the field, meet the need, make it based off of the need. But at some point the needs are always going to be there. So initially it's about the need, uh, as you go through the incident, you've got to have demobilization criteria. What are going to be the things that you need to check off that are going to get you out the door and home? Otherwise, you could stay for the duration of the event. So during Ridgecrest, uh, part of my crisis action planning was setting up criteria for our incident management teams for Salvation Army. Those included uh, power, water, and gas are restored. Well, in the week that I was in Ridgecrest, there were over 300 aftershocks. And every aftershock, almost every aftershock, severed those pipes that they would that they would repair every day. You know, there was uh I had another one that was boiled the boil water water the boil water advisory was eliminated. Hmm. Okay, well, every day there wasn't power. There wasn't water and there wasn't gas. Well, as we went on through the days, they end up getting um power back on um and water back on but not the gas. So now you have this boil water advisory, but you have no gas to heat it up. And in all these homes, in in a lot of these homes in Ridgecrest and in a city called Trona, that was more, it was more devastated by the event, really a rural town. Um, The boil water advisory didn't even matter because the gas wasn't on. Um, They couldn't even boil the water if they wanted to. So I had a, a list of three, I think I had four, four demobilization criteria. And if I could say that I could check off three of the four, you know, we'd be going home. So the first one was uh, power and water are restored. The next one was a boil advisory. Boil water advisory is eliminated. Another was uh, communities are pulling together to organize to do their own donations and feeding. Um, and another one was that the shelter overnight population was less than 25. So, and the reason I say that about the overnight shelter population is one of the unique issues that you, you run up against during an earthquake. It's that most people are in the shelter, not because their house is uninhabitable, but because of fear. Interesting. Earthquakes literally shake you up mentally. Sorry, but they do. Uh, they figuratively <laughs> shake you up they fig- mentally. Phys- fi- yeah, yeah. Literally shake you up. Literally, figuratively, all the, re- <laughs> all the ways. Uh, they, sh- they, they, they mess you up a little bit. And they make you scared. And they make you paranoid. And you can't go to sleep. And uh, so while I was there, there was an earthquake. There was a like a four point nine earthquake, relatively small, but I heard it, I felt it. It was the fir- it was I think it was my my first one in like twenty years, and so you kind of forget how it feels. Well, I was ready to bolt for the door, and then it stopped. Um, well, you're like oh wait, un- unbeknownst to me, my body, you know, I'm ready to go to sleep at night. I've been working for fifteen hours, and my body doesn't want to go to sleep. My body wants to stay awake. My body's alert, and, and there's like this disconnection between mind and body in that moment where you're like dang, I really want to go to sleep, but all I can do is sit here kind of out of fear. Um, you have nightmares. You have these things that you really can't control. So you have a lot of people. It's a really unique challenge. You have these people that don't want to go home because they want to be they want to be in a shelter. They also don't want to be in the shelter because it's a large structure. And they're afraid that it's going to fall, but it's the only place that they can go. So... Right. Um, there are different. So we met basically three of the four demobilization criteria. The one we didn't meet was the boil Water Advisory was eliminated. But that's why we made it a list of a checklist of we need three out of four or seven out of ten to go home. We had the same thing for the national IMAT West. We, got to, we have to meet these seven criteria before we can go home. You know, and once we met those, we went home. There was no thinking about it. You know, it wasn't we weren't waiting until every individual was recovered because that's not our job the federal government at the at the nonprofit level at the um, at any emergency manager it's not your responsibility to ensure that people recover individually that's their responsibility they do it for through family through friends through insurance there's lots of different through through their you know they may have their car then you go through FEMA maybe you do the individual and households program and you get up to the maximum grant which is thirty seven thousand or thirty eight thousand for your home for your for your uh the goods in your home. Then you go to the Salvation Army to get your rent paid for at an apartment that you're getting and they pay your landlord directly so that they ensure you're recovering. Um right. and so the the jobs of kind of like the nonprofits and the non-governmental organizations is to kind of pull you out of the hole or the debt maybe that the disaster put you in. Um, and and all these organizations were trying to get you back to a place um we're pretty much supplementing your recovery. Okay? Yeah. Emergency managers are trying to, we're working towards a societal recovery because when the society recovers, when the community has what it needs to recover, then the individuals have more of what they need to recover. But you get into like this real philosophical conversation, John, and I know there's a lot of philosophical conversations out there in emergency management where that's why it's great to have those actionables and meetings because you get all these philosophical conversations about, well, what is recovery?
0: Well what, oh is, well, what is the response? The tornado's already passed. So are we actually in a recovery now because we don't have a tornado? Yeah, are
1: we still in response or in recovery? Are they different phases? Are they same yeah. phase? Do they overlap? Like all these things. To avoid that, you come up with criteria. You come up with checklists. It's a mix of checklists. It's a mix of it's art and it's science. Um, that's, it's not one or the other. It's checklists and it's working through scenarios. So um, I think just for the earthquake, to get back to that, it's, one of the biggest things was demobilization criteria – Another one was, and with that demo criteria, it's not let's get in and hey, let's go home now. It's no, let's help people. Let's do it based off the need. And then once they meet this criteria, we go. Um, Another thing is to consider that each hazard is going to have different effects on people. That's going to drive what those people do. So just know that for an earthquake, people are going to be driven by fear. It's not going to be logical, but they're still going to need to be provided for until a certain point when they do need to go home.
0: Um, Well, you know, I I dealt with the tsunami earthquake in Japan and I had a lot of close friends that uh, dealt with that. And, uh, you know, for years, we're talking about years, sounds of construction, you know, mm -hmm. talk about, hey, you know, on edge.
1: Well, Ridgecrest and Trona are still experiencing aftershocks and they're still experiencing earthquakes. They had a 5.0 the other day. 5.6 the other day, and they're still experiencing them. Now, there's articles that are coming out talking about how these microquakes are actually, you know, they may actually be before the big San Andreas earthquake. But I talked to a USGS guy when I was in Trona. They came out to check the ground to see why Trona shakes, why it was shaking more heavily than uh, Ridgecrest, and Ridgecrest was maybe closer to the epicenter, or other towns were closer to the epicenter. Why did Trona shake? Well, Trona has a ton of minds in it, tons of different minds in it, um, and they think that that's what contributed to the greater shaking, but they really were still understanding it and they weren't sure. Um, so it's kind of fascinating there, uh, but just things to kind of look out for, I guess. You've hit so much on, you know, we I addressed on another episode
0: about PTSD, but you've you've addressed it so many times, you know, you, you kind of hit on that. Uh, whether it's dealing with stress in your body or, or, or living in fear or those after effects, the nightmares, uh, all that stuff is real. And that call out earlier about taking care of your body, uh, eating well, exercising, getting that stress out, talking with other people, uh, a lot of that stuff is 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 great. Mental health is extremely important. I've had to deal with major events, whether it's months of coronavirus, an earthquake that literally shook me out of my bed, uh, or a te- tornado that sounded like a freight train. And so every time I hear a train, I'm freaking out. Um, I, I had to deal with that I- as a kid. I, there was a tornado that was, that hit my high school, you know, just a couple miles down the road. And I, all of a sudden I had all these nightmares of being in school and being, you know, thrashed by a tornado. And, uh, That's kind of what happens. And so to be able to understand that, to be able to work through that is really great for people. Now, what I think probably the most impactful disaster to you thus far is probably having a bee inside your shirt. And I remember a superhero came along and saved you. Do you remember that event? That really important, uh, life-changing event for you when you had
1: a bee Uh... in your shirt? Yeah, right, so I uh, uh, so I had an epi I had an EpiPen on me at all times, and uh, so we're, John and I are driving in a car, and we're at a national level exercise, we just grabbed lunch, we're headed back, and uh, a bee flies into the window, right into my shirt sleeve, right here, and goes into my shirt, and I'm just freaking out, because I'm allergic. Uh, well, you know, the first thing John and I did was we panicked, and I started slapping my shirt like this, and John started slapping my shirt while I was driving, I s-
0: I'm driving, yeah, and I'm smacking his shirt. I'm like hitting him all over his chest. <laughs> you know, absolutely ridiculous. Well, actually, right before that, you're like, "Oh, the beads in my shirt," and then you're like, "Oh, I think it flew out the window." I think I think you thought it like came
1: out, and then you felt it again. Well, I think there's lessons. I think there's lessons <laughs> learned there, right? Like it did sting me twice uh, near my belly button, but there's lessons learned there. That's kind of like the it's impossible to stay calm. There's something immediate happening right now, and it's impossible to stay calm. Um, oh my gosh, I was, was I was the person though. in need in this one. I was the person in danger. Yeah. And then the bee is gone. Then I'm now I'm a person in need. Now I'm now I'm experiencing problems to my physical body. I like how you're making um, like real lessons out of this. It was
0: super. Is, I, <laughs> I
1: is, was the person so, in need. <laughs> then I had the EpiPen. Yeah. I had the training and I had the resources. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't, you know, I I didn't do it. John did it, Uh, Action. and uh, it was awkward. Oh but, my gosh! You so, know. Okay, so just for everybody,
0: this is a hilarious. So we're driving back for lunch, smacking his shirt. We're like, I don't know, hundreds of meters away from uh, our parking lot. We we pull up to the parking lot, about to put the epipen in his leg, and Parks shows up. Parks Finley shows up, who's a paramedic. He's like, "What are you doing?" Meanwhile, I'm standing behind Patrick absolutely hilarious, super awkward <laughs> moment. But at the end of the day, yeah, lessons learned there for sure. I saved your life, I'm pretty sure.
1: <laughs> well, Park, it's good that Park Spenny pulled up when he did. He was our disaster services assistance branch director. And uh, and so he had, he had walked up. Yeah. Uh, at least I'm he was like, able to coach me do? through, <laughs> like, here, now you're going to feel the epinephrine, and now you're going to feel this, and, uh, you know, stay calm, <laughs> and we'll take you to the hospital if we need to. And so... Um, it was great that even though you and I
0: both had training on that kind of stuff to to have a, again, an expert come in and be like, Hey, uh, I've done this before and I can walk you through yeah. the process. Stay calm. Don't be, don't be chaotic. We were definitely panicking, smacking your shirt, acting ridiculous. Uh, I'm glad that it's, it sounds like, you know, there was no side effects and it sounds like you're not even allergic from what you're saying. Um.
1: Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I really, uh, I don't want to test it, you know, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but I got stung in the, in the chest, in the yeah. stomach and, uh, my throat didn't close up, but we also did the EpiPen. Yeah. So that's what you have the training for. That's what you have your resources for. And, you know, we did the right things at the right time. It was just, uh, what a, what a crazy little embarrassing story.
0: <laughs> crazy moment. Well, for you and I who focus so much, like, again, talking about like being close to disaster, but we're not, you know, we're not, well, you are now, but, uh, you know, seeing the disaster from afar and trying to coordinate versus like being literally in the car and you're like, Oh my gosh, I'm allergic. There's a bee (laughs) in my shirt. And we just like freak out both of us. Uh, one of the most funny moments of my life. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure I saved your life, but also it was a, it was a great learning experience that even guys like you and me, it goes back to the, the idea of train frequently. Uh, you've talked a lot about uh, being part of Salvation Army. You've kind of hit on some of those points. I personally, before really uh, working with the Red Cross, I worked with the Red Cross for a while um, before I became a Fed. I didn't really know what the Salvation Army was. I just thought, you know, the guys ringing the bell at, uh, you know, around Christmas time for donations. But between Red Cross and coordinating with Salvation Army and working with you, I've learned so much more about disaster services for Salvation Army. Uh, can you just explain for our listeners, you know, who is Salvation Army? What's your purpose? And um, how, how do you work with volunteers?
1: Sure. So first off, we're an international movement. Um, we are a international humanitarian nonprofit, uh, faith-based nonprofit Um, our ministry is motivated by the love of God, and our mission is to preach the gospel at all times um, and to meet the human needs without discrimination. And so, um, you know, despite that fact that we are a faith-based organization, we respond to disasters. Uh, The disaster response environment is a secular environment. Uh, You're not allowed to proselytize. You're not allowed to try to convert uh, you're not allowed to really hand out Bibles or anything like that. We've learned lessons through other organizations and even through ourselves with that. So to help people, we don't ask them, what's your orientation? Where are you from? Uh, what's your personal information? It's really, do you have a need? What is your need? We can help you with your need. Um, and the amazing thing about The Salvation Army and that we're a nonprofit is that I, I'm convinced we can do anything. Um, given the, the severity of a disaster, but we also solely operate off of donations. So we get donations, they either go to our you know, our, our general fund or they go to a specific disaster and people decide on our website how they wanna donate. Well, the general one is gonna to go towards preparedness for the next exercise and allow us to be ready and respond quickly. And uh, the button for, on the website for the disaster at the time is gonna be just for that disaster, just for that response just for the supplies, equipment, just for um, uh, just for helping people recover, just for financial assistance for people. Um, you need people to help people. Um, maybe that's one of my axioms too. Um, you need people to help people. You need people to love people. Um, and so the Salvation Army, we are, the, the very unique thing about the Salvation Army, as opposed to other organizations that respond to disasters, is that, We are one organization, but we're in almost every zip code. We have a permanent office in almost every zip code. So when we respond to a disaster, we don't have to wait for the local jurisdiction to request us because our office and our community is probably already being impacted. So we may get a request from the Red Cross. We may get a request from the county government, Um, or we may already be prepping... Pre-positioning. I may already be activating our teams. Um, So there's a lot we can do. During 9/11, we did just we we set up a a massive uh, cafe uh, for everyone to come in and eat at. We took the boots off of first uh, search and rescue and firefighters. Uh, We had volunteers who were kind of massaging their feet and giving them brand new socks to put on to go back out into it. Uh we provide that emotional spiritual care during that time we partnered with catering companies serving you know sixty thousand meals eventually it was several million meals um wow. during katrina we we provided uh kind of you can anything you can really think of we're going to provide so even if it's you're you've you've racked up credit card debt because uh, trying to care for your family during this disaster. Well, there's a chance that the Salvation Army may be offering to pay people's credit card debt. You know, we're going to pay with, you know, FEMA and other organizations. They will pay people directly. Um, That has its, you know, merits and its downfalls. But the Salvation Army, our course of action is to pay the landlord directly, uh, to pay the furniture company directly, so that it's guaranteed that you get a place to stay, that you get your furniture. And what we offer really depends on the disaster. You know, so we have kind of like a big list of things we can provide. Well, what do people need? We're not just going to provide something because we have the ability to provide it. We have to provide things based off of the needs, the tailored needs of those people. Can you get some examples of that? Like, I don't know. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah oh yeah, yeah. So for the car fire, the Mendocino Complex fire, and the car fire, you know, burned more acres um, than ever in California history. Um, one big thing was, you know, houses burned well, we've gotten certain grants um, and we gotten support from our community. And one of the things that we did was we went in and we provided disaster reconstruction. So we worked directly with construction companies to go in and help people rebuild their homes. Not only that, we worked with the power companies to uh, get power poles put into people's neighborhoods, into their yards so that they can get power run back to their home. Um, that's a unique thing that we're doing that... Uh, that we started doing. I'm not sure how many other organizations are doing that. I've never even
0: heard of another nonprofit working on that. So that's pretty cool.
1: Oh yeah. We're, I mean, everything from, you know, putting a roof on a house, putting a driveway, any of the needs, maybe a full uh, rebuild. And we're working with other organizations to help get rebuilds happening. Uh, Power poles. And we're talking in rural communities up in Reading and Northern parts of California where people, they live there. That's still their community. They still want to live there. Okay, well, how can we do this? So we're always looking at unique chances, not unique even, common chances to interact with people together. We can provide a service that nobody else is providing. We've paid dental bills, medical bills, health insurance. We've paid for stuff for pets. Uh, We've paid for hotel rooms. Um,
0: You look at the needs of the disaster, the actual needs and say, okay, like what do people need to recover? And you're, you're one of those people, your organization sounds like one of those people we were talking about helping people get up, get out of hole, you know, as a fed, uh, in terms of a planning piece, or at least that coordination piece, we would say, how many ladders do we need to build to help people get out before they can start sharing those ladders? Your organization sounds like, okay, well, they're going to go out here and they're going to make that ladder, but they're going to get out of this hole and it's still going to be raining right? So how do we get them out of the rain? And so it sounds like you guys are doing really great things, helping out a a ton of people, millions of meals. Wow. Holy cow.
1: You know, one thing, uh, maybe it's just a unique thing. We try to do this in communities where it makes sense, where there's a need for it, but communities are communities because people know each other because they're compact because they, there's close ties that connect people. Well, something we did during the Ridgecrest earthquake was we I mean, we provided showers to people. Yes, we provided difference in feeding, but we also held a uh, community event where we had local vendors come from out of town, come from Bakersfield, drove up with a wood fire oven to create pizzas for people, and we fed 400 people and just brought them out. There was some music. Um, they could also pick up food from, it was held at a local church where they were doing food donation distribution. So people are able to just hang out, get a free meal take a shower if they want um and so it's more than just about individual recovery it's it's more than just about supplementing that it's also about bringing a sense of community that we're actually in and being part of that
0: yeah community helps uh, communities recover individuals for trying to recover on their own is a is a big mistake once you get a community involved you're able to to, to kind of come out and stay out mm-hmm. of that hole um Okay, so last big one before we get to rapid fire, because we started doing rapid fire. Uh, you guys made a, a video, and we're going to put it on our show notes, so you guys should probably watch it. It's a YouTube video where you kind of talk about overcoming some of that fear of volunteering in the COVID environment. And we cannot talk to uh, a, a, an expert emergency manager without talking about COVID right now, especially one that deals with a ton of volunteers. Your your entire organization is basically in volunteers, right? in a disaster. So how do you deal with that? I mean, are people not wanting to volunteer because of COVID or situational awareness really driving that up? And how are you protecting them? How do you like reduce that fear that we were talking about?
1: Right. So uh, COVID in California and in other states and all around the country is ebbing and flowing. It's, there's, there's lots of cases and there's, uh, or there's, you know, cases are going down and restrictions are being lifted. Uh, cases are going up, and they're putting more restrictions on. And I think we're going to see that flow for the foreseeable future. Um, so we're seeing both sides of the spectrum. Uh, people that uh, people that feel driven now to volunteer more. Maybe they're um, unemployed. Maybe they're taking classes at home. There's just something that are keeping people home. They want to get out of the house, and they want to volunteer. They want to do something good. We love seeing that. We also have this recognition that a large population, a large portion of our volunteer force is, you know, of an elder population or a senior population, a 65 and up population. So we're not discouraging them from volunteering. We can't stop them from volunteering, but we are trying to educate people, provide them them with enough information on how they can volunteer, but also here are the risks involved in volunteering. So um, we've just finished putting together a food or feeding or disaster response policies and procedures. Um, And it it includes kind of a a revised volunteer liability form that tells people here are the risks. You know, your mask may not prevent you from getting coronavirus from COVID-19. If you decide to deploy with us, you may be exposed to dozens of people, hundreds of people at a a shelter. We are providing uh, personal protective equipment with masks, with gloves, we have face shields as well, but we're also working with the Red Cross who has offered to provide us with PP- all the PPE we need if we're uh, helping out at their shelter. Our role now is to make That's sure that great. if we're not volunteering at their shelter providing services uh, at a hotel or one of their shelters that, that we have all that we need to protect our people. Not only that, but we've put together safety procedures, um, and there's just kind of a packet. So when people come to the disaster, when they come to the staging area, They're all going to get briefed on here are the expectations, managing those expectations. Here are the expectations. Here's what you're going to experience in the field. Here's your risk. And then after we go through the whole thing with them, they have to sign to say that they understand. That protects everyone involved, um, but also that that keeps everyone aware of what's going on. And that if they do, you know, if they start feeling sick, what are they supposed to do? You know, don't, don't put things out there that people can understand Put things out there that people can't misunderstand. Here are the procedures. This is exactly what you do. Step-by-step, you're feeling sick. Don't come in, um, stay home, call it into your supervisor, and we're going to monitor the situation from there. Uh, we can't force anyone to go get a test and we can't force them to tell us the results of the test. Uh, so we really have to work off of people's symptoms and just keeping people as covered as possible. Um, so we want to take care of our volunteers as much as the people that we are also meeting the need for, uh, people that we're taking care of. So it's kind of, kind of goes back to that self-care thing. You got to take care of yourself before you can take care of other people. Um, you got to make sure that you're as protected as possible. And the people in your organization are, you know, following their schedule, taking care of themselves, staying as sanitary and safe as possible. Um, but also that, they still are able to help other people in a place where they can do that. Yeah, the the big thing right now is that because
0: of COVID-19, because of the pandemic, every disaster we're dealing with is dual threat. So in wildfire season, it's likely that people will lose their homes. And so you have to help out those people. The option not to help out is unacceptable. And I think that uh, if your organization, it sounds like, Uh, you've you've thought of literally everything you should do for helping out a pandemic, is you can be safe, and these people need help. Emergency management, whether you're a full-time professional, whether you're volunteering your time, uh, this field is extremely rewarding. And I can promise that even in a COVID environment where your fear, your situational awareness might be hitting that max, if you're helping out other people and you're taking everything prudently, you're following what Patrick is saying as part of the Salvation Army, you're one of those volunteers, you're going to be fine. And at the end of the day, you'll be able to lay down your head and think, okay, I helped somebody today. And that alone will drive you to want to do more of this kind of stuff. I was part of the Red Cross. Um, I worked for the Red Cross before, and so I worked a lot with Salvation Army. I know Patrick very well, and so he's told me even more things. You heard a little bit about what they're doing. If you're thinking about volunteering in a disaster and you're listening to this podcast because you think emergency management is fascinating or you're in school or whatever, and you're looking for opportunities to volunteer, I would strongly recommend volunteering with the Salvation Army. They have a lot of really good things out there, and as part of an organization that addresses needs... You'll be able to uh, attend, or you'll be able to go to incidents where you're able to provide different needs and gain a lot of different experiences, like learning in earthquakes that people have an irrational fear of things falling down, or you'll you'll learn about wildfires and the impacts of that, and so you'll become much more well versed.
1: There's probably a Salvation Army in your area too, um, so we can put the John. Maybe we can put the link to volunteer in the in the, in the Show notes. notes. Yeah. We can show notes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because uh, generally anywhere you are in the country, we're all over the country, all over the United States. Um, there's probably one close to you. And if there's an event, we are going to need more volunteers coming up in this season. For sure. Uh, to make up for the amount of people that are uncomfortable volunteering. Um, but there's lots of jobs. There aren't just jobs that you do when you, inter- you know, when you're within six feet of other people or you're at a shelter and there's a chance of exposure. There are some jobs you could do at home too. So, um, you know, we can provide that link, and um, if you want to go and explore our website, sign up with us, um, we, can, we can put you to work.
0: Yeah, we'll put that YouTube video in there, and we'll also put that link for sure.
1: Okay, so we're
0: going to do our rapid fire. This has been a fun, long conversation. We might break this up <laughs> into two sections, uh, but I just was really curious, and I think we, we hit on a lot of really good topics. All right, th- this last section, Patrick, is the last section of our podcast. We've, we started doing it a few weeks ago. We really like it. We've gotten some good feedback, and so we want to do it with you, too. It's called Rapid Fire. We're just going to ask you four or five different questions, and if you could just provide a quick answer right off the cuff, that would be really great for us. Okay? So, first question. What is more valuable, being a certified emergency manager or having a
1: college degree? Uh, I would say that both are valuable. Um I would say in order to be a more well-rounded emergency manager, you might want to go with the degree first and foremost. Um, It's two years of emergency management knowledge that you uh, are picking up. Some you may want to know about, some you may not, but you're better for it uh, in the end. And then the CEM uh, from the International Association of Emergency Managers requires a bachelor's degree in the first place. So um, it is extremely valuable. Yeah. And I totally agree. Uh, I think valuable kind of puts it into
0: a box a little bit, but college degrees for sure, making you more well, well well-rounded talking about theory, talking about data. We want to push people towards thinking about data and analytics towards, uh, helping them in an emergency management uh, perspective. So next question. Got it. All right. Uh, what was the most impactful disaster to your career?
1: Uh, the most impactful disaster to my career was probably... Uh, oh, my gosh, dude, that's that's a tough question. Hurricane Harvey was a big one, of course. Um, yeah, maybe maybe Hurricane Harvey. Otherwise, it would have been maybe... Kincaid Fire was a small fire, but uh, we had a ton of lessons learned from that one.
0: Yeah, I think my first one was probably... It was probably uh, the tsunami in Japan. My first one that really drove me into this field from going more from a volunteer to like, oh, I want to do this for the rest of my life.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It might have, you know, for me, I was sorry. I was thinking professional life. Uh, Maybe Hurricane Katrina. I did a mission trip to help in recovery for Hurricane Katrina for different uh, different survivors like a year after it happened. And so. It put you on a path. It might have kicked things off. Yeah. Yeah, it really kicked things off, I think. That's cool
0: uh name the top 3 things all emergency managers or emergency planners must do to
1: be successful uh involve other people and that goes with teamwork uh search out be uh take initiative take take initiative and uh seek out answers for yourself um and then situation awareness tell other people not only about the plan that you just made with other people and the teamwork that was involved with it, and not just the analysis and searching on the answers on your own, but go and tell people and spread the awareness of, of what you've learned so that they can learn as well. Got it. That's good. That's really good. Um, we added protection in when, we, when FEMA joined
0: up with DHS as one of the, the five areas of um, what our company likes to call the disaster life cycle. We think that's a better term for it. Uh should protection be part of emergency management?
1: Yeah, wow, that's a really interesting question. Uh I'll try to make my answer short. So we have something called ESF 13, emergency support function 13, that's law enforcement. Right. And uh is it needed? Is it needed in the disaster life cycle? You know, if if uh if a town you had an um campfire, you had paradise where pretty much the whole town is burnt away, um, everybody needs something. Well, there's distribution centers. There's, uh, there's lots of distribution centers, and in order to keep those safe, you need counties, you need sheriff's departments, you need police departments uh, in order to break right. up the fights. And I think that security is a huge part of every disaster, every disaster response and every small or emergency response and any kind of event that you want to do. You have to have security there. I think that's really important. Yeah,
0: I think, uh, I think I've think I've fallen similar lines. At the end of the day, I talked to a guy a couple of weeks ago about this on the episode, uh, on his episode, the July 4th one. Uh, at the end of the day, if you're working at an agency uh, and you're the emergency manager, because people don't really understand the difference between operations, planning, logistics, whatever, they just hear emergency manager, they will naturally look to you in a man-made incident like an active shooter. And if they are doing that, and there is security, I think emergency managers, just the way the way that w- we live in this world, we at least need to understand that very, very well, and so that we can help people direct towards life-saving operations. Now, still referred to law enforcement, call 911, the whole deal, but uh, understanding how to work with law enforcement. Hey, we need security here. What their constraints are. I think is really important
1: well th- that goes back to the uh that goes back to the we're not the answer we're part of the solution they're also part of the solution absolutely um sometimes they can offer resources that we don't currently have they can offer services that we don't currently have it's not just security but they can offer all sorts of other things that they do and you have them in the room with you when you're doing your planning and now your your situation is so much different
0: talk about somebody who has to be in the room during evacuation route planning if a law enforcement, the local law enforcement agencies or the state law enforcement agencies haven't done reverse traffic before, historically, they don't do it very well. And so just to have that piece in there to say like, hey, we haven't practiced this before. We haven't like tested this out or we need training just to even to like talk about those different things. is really
1: important. Right. There's that phrase, you know, the drill, you know, the drill yeah make that make, make that a truth in your organization or you guys when you say that it's true yeah axiom right you know the drill actually makes sense um what are your known unknowns oh <laughs> uh, yeah known unknowns why does the word phonetically not sound the way it's pronounced um <laughs> why is it not spelled the same way that it's pronounced uh do you meet your soulmate when you when you die i heard that you meet your soulmate when you die i have I, no idea i have no known unknowns these are just things we will never no. know Known unknowns.
0: We had had a team lead who would always say, what are your known unknowns? And every single time I made fun of it. It's ridiculous. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Second to last question. We talked about putting in the show notes. Your last pitch for Salvation Army. Where can people go if they want to volunteer?
1: Uh, Yeah, so they can go to go salarmy.org um if they want to sign up to volunteer they could you know they could search into google they can look at it in the show notes uh, there's lots of different opportunities we provide we provide feeding we may provide sheltering We provide emotional spiritual care we do logistics operations finance uh, planning and we often don't get volunteers for those but we need volunteers for those positions Um, and i'm happy to train from a distance with videos with Whatever, we're still developing that, but uh, that's, it may just be a conversation and walking through some documents and giving some homework and that sort of thing to look at. Uh, it could be something that you come to the disaster and you're interested in that and we assign it to you. Um, in, there's, there's a lot more flexibility in the nonprofit world as opposed to the government world. Um, and so we're still a work in progress, of course, but uh, a lot of me coming to this organization was to bring that disaster organization with me to make things easier on people so that disasters don't feel so chaotic. Um, and we are going to have an active fire season this year. It's going to happen. They've already talked about it. It's uh, I look at the National Interagency uh, Fire Weather, Fire Wildland Prediction Services that tell you three months ahead of time what areas are going to have the highest risk for fire. It's going to happen in Northern California. It's just a matter of are we going to be able to contain it and are we going to have enough volunteers to meet the need?
0: Yeah. So if you're if you want to uh, volunteer with Salvation Army, go there. You can also again check out our show notes. Anywhere in the U.S., that, you know that has a zip code, they're also international. So if you're listening to this, we have uh, randomly, which is really cool, by the way, a bunch of listeners in Belgium. So uh, you know, check us check out Salvation Army for um, international work there. Or if you want to donate, again, great mission. I totally support it. Um, and, uh, Patrick, obviously the most important question, the final question of this podcast is what is the best podcast for emergency managers?
1: Oh, disaster. Tough. Boom.
0: All right, everybody. (laughs) Thanks so much, Patrick, for coming on to the show. Uh, You covered so many great points. You talked about those self-evident truths, those axioms that you found throughout your career. You hit on so many different types of disasters, which we really appreciate. You talked about mental health. You talked about planning constraints. You talked about coordination with different people. You talked about the the mission of Salvation Army and how to volunteer with them. Again, so many good points for people to listen to. Uh, So everybody go on there, go to Salvation Army, uh, check out what they're doing. If you like this podcast, Please give us that five-star rating and subscribe. And if you have questions, concerns, comments, whatever, send us an email at info at DobermanEMG.com. Again, that's info at DobermanEMG.com.